This fine podcast is sponsored by FutureNet. FutureNet is a networking-focused, invitation-only event being held during VMworld this August 2017. You'll hear from industry leaders and expert practitioners about new and emerging technologies that will transform the network. Request your invitation at vmware.com slash futurenet. While cruising in your infrastructure spaceship, you find you need to make a stop for a hardware refresh. Yeah, the old rocket needs an upgrade and uh, maybe some secret compartments for smuggling. Hmm. Well, which planet should we stop at to get the work done? Planet Snowflake? Planet Converge? Ooh, Planet Hyperconverge over there. That looks like a good one. Oh, and this Planet Composable just showed up on the map. Well, today on the Data Knots, what should your new infrastructure look like? Packetpushers.net, you can find this in all of our Datanaut shows about infrastructure engineering, or just search for Datanauts, spelled like astronauts, in your favorite podcatcher. You can follow us at Datanauts underscore show. I am Ethan Banks at EC Banks, and with me is the incredible Chris Wall at Chris Wall. He finds Waldo every single time. And joining us today is Fred Chagnon, which I probably got wrong because I can't figure it out, Fred. It's like it says your name is Chagnon right there, but no, Chagnon, because it's like French. And Fred, if you would introduce yourself to the Data Knots audience. Yes, absolutely. And uh, yeah, you got it right, Ethan. It is. It's yes. Fred Chagnon. I'm a, an IT research analyst advisor uh, up here in Canada. I work for a, sp- a firm called Infotech Research Group. Uh, I've been an analyst for the last two and a half years. But before that, spent a decade and a half locked in a data center working on servers, network, and storage arrays. All right. Well, Fred, welcome to the show. You and I were talking in the back channel about how to make a choice for new data center infrastructure. And, uh, you know, the question kind of came up, well, what are the pros and cons to a bunch of different approaches? You know, we could go and build a traditional data center like we always have where you buy some servers and you buy some storage and you throw a bunch of people together and you say, make it all work. You know, that's a way to do it. Of course, there's converged, um, there's hyper-converged, and then there's this new thing called composable, which has got a bunch of other names too. And so the question was, what should you buy if you're in the market for some new stuff? And you you did a whole bunch of homework on this, and so we decided to turn this into a show. So first of all, I want to thank you for you know being willing to contribute all of your research and homework to this show and sharing with the audience. And then let's just kick this off at the beginning we're talking about the stuff that people are familiar with, the traditional infrastructure that we know and love and, and caringly have nurtured and grown into special snowflakes, all of our own. In your mind, anyway, what do we mean by this kind of traditional infrastructure? Yeah, when, when I think of traditional infrastructure, I'm thinking of, we'll call it the classic way of procuring IT infrastructure, right? So, you know, we get some network switches from one vendor. We get some servers from another. Those might be rack mount servers. They could be blades. Get some storage, you know, maybe in the form of a big giant storage array or, or maybe some some direct attach. And then we as infrastructure admins, right, we, we cobble it all together and uh, and create an operating platform for our, our business applications. So that's what I would say is a, is a typical uh, traditional infrastructure. That kind of way of building seems to be under attack. I mean, when you say storage and network and, and blades and things, I get kind of excited because it reminds me of the good times of kind of like working with Legos, but very expensive ones in the data center. So I guess, are there good reasons you'd still want to keep building that way to kind of justify or maybe to retort against those that are like, this is the worst way ever to do it? Well, I think we can all agree, those of us who have been doing this for a long time, it, it's a, an easy and well-understood way. And I, I say easy just because of the fact that it's, been, it's what we've been doing. It's worked for a very long time. 
it's been successful for a very long time. But as we move into a world where we're not just, and by we, I mean IT, we're not just looking to build platforms for traditional line of business applications like ERP and HRIS, but now we, we might have demands that require uh, something to, with a little bit more agility, with a little bit more velocity. That traditional way of cobbling together infrastructure doesn't operate with the speed uh, that it takes to serve those kind of business requests. I just want to be clear. It's not about finding someone who can do it because I feel like there's lots of people who know how to do it, can do it well. You know, it can be stood up and it does provide a place for applications to run. But maybe the architecture was well suited two years ago when it was like this project's going to be two years to get this one app off the ground. That's right. And with so many options now available to us at the at the swipe of a credit card, you know, our businesses, our application users, those uh, coworkers of ours that have relied on us to do this before, they have other options. And there, there are good reasons and bad reasons to, to look at public cloud. We don't want those reasons to just be because IT is slow. We want to be able to give them options that are more couched in, in you know, proper risk mitigation and, and things like that. Would you say that building a traditional architecture, you know, those special snowflakes, is it short-sighted to do it that way at this point? Because, I mean, you can argue this both ways, right? Because they're, again, like Chris, you said this and Fred, you made the point. There's a lot of people out there that know how to build these sorts of infrastructures, you know, what it's like to buy external storage and get all that uh, storage mapped to the proper systems and stand up a whole bunch of different servers and, and, and build the virtualization infrastructure. People know that. So is it really that bad or short-sighted to go about it that way these days? I think it's only short-sighted if you haven't actually asked the question, what does the infrastructure platform need to do tomorrow? We know what it needs to do today, and we, we're serving the, the needs of yesterday as well. But if we don't go to our business and say, what do you need from IT infrastructure in the next two years, three years, five years, and traditional infrastructure isn't a good solution for that, then it is short-sighted to not have that in mind. Okay, well, let's transition a bit. Let's move to Converged, which it used to be the new hotness. Now I feel like it's a little more known and it almost feels like traditional in a sense because we've been working for a while. So let's define, first off, what Converged infrastructure is. Well, I would define Converged as the packaged offering of what we've already talked about in in traditional. So you're buying now uh, sometimes a, a reference architecture or maybe a blended solution of a couple vendors, you know, something like FlexPod being, you know, Cisco and, and NetApp all together, or or you're getting a single SKU from a from a vendor that is giving you a product that's comprised of their servers, their network gear, their storage array, all in, in one nice sexy cabinet, single SKU deployed all at once. So it solves some of those problems that we talked about with traditional architecture. I can get a converged platform delivered to my data center. So I'm not burdened with the racking and stacking and all of that stuff. So that shortens my time to value. It also solves the procurement problems. I don't have to worry about, will this storage array integrate very well with these servers? Or if it doesn't, is it a problem with the HBA? Or is it a problem with the SAN switch? I, I have some degree of assurance that all of these things will work together. So operationally, I, we've solved some of those day two challenges as well. I think of Converge as like a like a V block, you know, a, a rack or multiple racks of gear. You know, it's a huge purchase for massive compute needs, and that's typically why you would go that route. Is that still fair? I mean, would you you think that's reasonable to to categorize it that way? I think that's reasonable. I think of it more of a an infrastructure silo that is 
built for a, a bespoke single purpose. So that could be high performance computing. That's a that's a good use case for uh, an infrastructure stack that just does that. Or I need to build a platform that's just going to run databases. Converged as a as a platform to put all of my sort of general purpose uh, workloads. I think that's where we're starting to see more more modern solutions today. All right. So what are the issues committed to converged infrastructure? Because I, I can already kind of smell the issues. It's probably not the best way to term it. But, you know, you're taking traditional stuff that's been prepackaged. It feels like the only thing we're really solving there is speed to implementation, but not necessarily the day two stuff. I mean, is that correct? You want to expand upon that? Well, the day two stuff that we're solving are some of those finger pointings that we might have had with traditional where, you know, maybe internal finger pointing, you know, your storage array or, or it's your server. You still got those silos in your organization or the vendor finger pointing that might exist between storage array vendor. And they're saying it's a problem with the sand switch or, or whatever. So we're solving some of those. But what we're not solving is we're not doing anything faster. We're not we haven't centralized any kind of management Right. You're still managing storage the way you would have always managed that storage array. You're still managing servers the way you would have always done that. There's no innovation from the traditional architecture. It basically is just a single product that we've bought. So it's day two operational solution is finger pointing potentially. I don't know. I don't know if that's enough. It feels like it may be in some cases where you have a very toxic culture. And what? obviously we're looking at busting silos here, but I don't know. It's solving a different issue than a lot of what we talk about in the show, Chris, I think, because converged infrastructure fixes the the thing Fred just highlighted, the hardware compatibility and the software and the drivers and all that kind of stuff. That's been certified and blessed. You know that's good. So all you're getting is a lot of proof of concept and testing work out of the way in the form of a SKU and a big buy. Uh, but there's There's a big trade-off there, though, because if someone's going to tell me these are the nine things, and they work together with this particular configuration of the software, then I'm handcuffed to that specific topology for my data center. And I don't, I rage against the machine on that a little bit, but that may be just be my personal take on it. Well, yeah, I mean, you, you are locking into that solution. So it depends on if you want, I mean, simplicity comes at the cost of flexibility, right? If you want flexibility or the ability to swap out some of those parts for ones that you think might work better, you're going to trade in that simplicity or the the pre-certification that you got that says that those work. Yeah, I think in my mind, I'm thinking more around the laggard time between when someone that packages all this stuff together, because it's not their stuff, it's a bunch of other people's stuff that's been packaged together. So the lag time between when they are able to work with all of those component vendors to say this works together versus the speed of innovation to we want to run the new version of this or the new hypervisor, or the new whatever, and being kind of handcuffed to older versions of stuff, maybe six plus months behind. That's mostly what I rage against a little bit. I, I understand that you can't have a plethora of anything you want in the data center and make it all work together like a magical unicorn prancing through the, the aisles. But we try. I think it's worth reminding everybody, uh, maybe it's top of mind, maybe not, uh, that the data center, it is a complex and ever-changing environment. It's not static. Thus, it's important to understand the trade-offs and the risks that are absorbed by using more, you know, I'll say comfortable or quote-unquote safer stacks, you know, the traditional stuff found in the bring-your-own, you know, hardware or even the converged infrastructure stacks. Again, there's never a silver bullet and that uh, it's all about understanding what you're giving and what you're getting with these different stacks. Ethan, what's on your mind? 
The thing Fred said that really stuck out to me was that converged is essentially it's it's a snowflake architecture, but it's just got a bow wrapped around it. You know, now you've got this skew, so you can go ahead and order the same thing you've been ordering right along. Only some people did a certain amount of hard work uh, for you by certifying software and you know sand switch compatibility with the servers and so on. But we didn't really win in any of the other battles. You know, we didn't make operations any easier. We didn't move infrastructure management forward. Which was kind of a, you know, a big thought to me because you know, one of the things about Converged is it's so you know it's supposed to make your life so much easier, and it does, but it's got its limitations. You're here. Let's take a break to talk about this unique networking conference sponsoring our show today, FutureNet. On August 30th and 31st, 2017, at the tail end of VMworld in Las Vegas, VMware is hosting an invitation-only mini-conference on networking called FutureNet. We Packetbushers attended this last year, and we learned from listening to people who are pushing the boundaries of possible, you know, the kind of things you can really do with a network. And the speakers who showed up there, these are not the kind of people you see speaking publicly about what they do all that often. So we were exposed to a lot of different ideas about networking that were thought-provoking and interesting and maybe even able to change our skeptical minds. So if you're interested in this, remember, again, FutureNet is invitation only, but there are still some invitations left to go out. So let's say you're a senior enterprise networking or cloud architect, you're a principal engineer, you're a CTO, you're a master practitioner of cloud technology. You've got some kind of a senior role in networking or cloud architecture. You're the sort of a person that FutureNet might want to have on board. So, and if you're not sure, I mean, go ahead, submit yourself anyway, and maybe you match and get an invitation. Now, you do need to cover your own travel and hotel to the event, and this is in Las Vegas, which can be super cheap if you hit it right, but the FutureNet conference itself is free if you qualify. And again, this is one of the best conference-style events we packet pushers have ever attended. So again, if you're a senior influencer in your organization, then you should definitely request an invitation at vmware.com slash FutureNet. One more time, that is vmware.com slash FutureNet. All right, enough of me railing on traditional and showing everyone on the doll where the converged infrastructure touched me. Let's talk about hyperconverged. Not only just a funny kind of name, it actually means something. So, Fred, can you define hyperconverged infrastructure for the audience? Sure. Hyperconverged solutions are are that mix of uh, infrastructure software that pools compute memory and storage resources coming from a bunch of nodes into pools with a single management overlay. So we're all familiar with what we got in virtualization. We got abstracted compute memory. And then we add some software-defined storage to that. Now we've got virtualized compute. We get that all in a nice package with the single management interface. Hyperconverged solutions can also include the specific high-density hardware that brings all of that together. I'm careful not to define hyperconverged you know, with hardware in mind, because there are so many software-only solutions as well. Okay, so first of all, if you're new to the Data Knots podcast, we covered hyperconverged infrastructure, I think, in a few shows, but certainly in our very first show, show one, we talked about hyperconverged in some detail. So that would be another reference point if you're trying to sort out what hyperconverged is all about. So, okay, Fred, back to you. We talked about traditional and converged and now hyperconverge. What are the scenarios in your mind where I really want to do hyperconverged infrastructure? That that's like the smart choice. It makes sense to me. I think it it all comes down to simplicity. You want things to just work. You're done with building out hardware architectures, and you you want a platform that will work for 
the majority of you want to crank out virtual machine after virtual machine for the the vast majority of your workloads. You want to scale uh, with the ability to just add nodes without having to think about what it's going to take to to plug in new architecture. You're also okay with a single vendor. You want one throat to choke, maybe. Okay, so the skeptical question then comes in. You made the point about simplicity. I can scale by adding nodes. And I've worked with some hyperconverged platforms that that's the way they are, Nutanix specifically. That's pretty much it. Uh, you get a new, uh, in their case, a new piece of hardware and the software's on it. You put it in the rack, you plumb it up to the network, you join it to the cluster and boom, off you're going. You can then begin to stand up new workloads or rebalance uh, and so on. And it did feel that simple, but it always made me, ah, there's so much going on in the background. I mean, in reality, in your opinion, are the hyperconverged platforms really that trustworthy with so much being hidden away from you, the, uh, you know, what's really going on under the hood? I think what they're promising to do is solve all of those undifferentiating problems that we spend so much time on. So I'm prepared to trust that that these things are worked out. I still want to understand them. I still think that there's value in knowing what's going on, understanding what software-defined storage does, understanding where the work moves from the, the hypervisor to the storage hypervisor. There's value in understanding that, especially in the early days while we're, you know, where we might still not trust all that technology. But I don't want to be doing that day in, day out anymore. No, that, that's a fair point. I mean, no, I don't want to be doing that day in and day out either. It's just, I don't know, there's something about being an engineer where you want to know every knob and dial, how they work and what they do and every command to check so that you really feel like you're in control. And when you go to hyperconverge, you're trading in control for simplicity, which which you highlighted. And But then again, do we really want to be in that position of turning those knobs? And as you say, I, I guess you really don't. Yeah, those the, the knobs we're trying to hide away from ourselves are the are the knobs that aren't bringing value to our business. Okay, so the, so let me let me flip the question on its head then. If I have a good sense of why I do want to do hyperconverged. When should hyperconverged scare me, or or maybe when do I look at the solution and I would come to the conclusion that's probably not the right fit for me? So there there are. A- three or four that I can think of. Um, the first is if your organization is not ready for this sort of the, the disruptive influence that a hyperconverged platform might bring. You know, that's sort of the subject of a lot of conversations I have with, uh, with IT managers in this topic area. You're looking at a solution that's really going to break down the silo between your server folks and your storage folks. Sometimes the big question that I get is who buys a hyperconverged platform? Is it the server folks or the storage folks? And to that, I, I usually answer, if those two departments still have their own budgets, hyperconverged is going to be an awkward fit. Tackling that organizational shift first before looking at something like this, understanding that you've got this infrastructure model on the horizon, I think you really need to look internally to see if it's going to be a fit in your organization. Well, that's uh, what a funny thing to have to park on. Here's this great new technology that could really simplify your operations and make it super easy to stand up virtualized workloads. Boom, off you go. And then <laughs> we don't know how to buy it because of the way we do our budgeting. <laughs> what a you, know, you got to get some manager involved that could like shift those things around, I suppose, and kind of fix that problem. That's right. That's right. You, you, I mean, it does take a little bit of sponsorship from leadership, absolutely, to to at least understand that that's what's happening here. 
and that the storage folks, you know, if they were working on storage arrays before, uh, you know, they'll still have to support the storage arrays that exist in the environment. You know, the storage that's serving this environment is not coming from the storage array. It's coming from the disks that are inside the direct attached disks that are inside the frame. When else is hyperconverge going to be a bad fit for me besides the, uh, the purchase cycle? You can't get all the way to virtualization. So if physical bare metal workloads, which still have their place in some areas of the, of the data center, if that's still a significant part of your footprint, you're not going to standardize on hyperconverge. You may still create a silo of uh, workloads that work in hyperconverge. Maybe you put your VDI on there or something like that, but you're never going to achieve that. This is my one data center platform architecture if you have a significant physical workload uh, architecture still. I got it. There's some sticker shock that comes into procuring hyperconverge that I've seen. So that's another thing that can tend to dissuade some some folks. But when we have a conversation around the fact that what you're buying is a compute storage hypervisor management happy meal altogether, then you know then you really understand that you know the TCO is there. It's probably better than buying all of those things separately. I it's basically like buying Neapolitan ice cream, right? You could buy all the uh, chocolate, vanilla, strawberry in different containers of, and, and in quantities that suit your appetite. But really what you're looking to do is standardize on one way of purchasing and, you know, you, you're getting it all at once. Except I don't know who would do that, though, because we all know Rocky Road is the only ice cream worth <laughs> procuring. <laughs> Maple walnut. You bring up another issue here, which is one way of doing things, which kind of makes me think, well, right, if you commit to a hyperconverged platform, you're committing to a vendor and therefore you're really effectively locked into that vendor. Is that a, a big deal? You, you're, you're locking into a vendor in, in maybe a couple ways, and that is something that can send some folks uh, running to the hills. So if you go and buy uh, a Nutanix or a SimpliVity or, or one of those, you know, you're locking in to uh, an entire stack, hardware, software, management complete. There are some who, who, you know, maybe that's not part of their strategy. So it's important to understand how open you are to this. I look at lock-in, like, like asking if, you, uh, if it's okay to lock into a vendor. It's like asking somebody if it's okay to get married. Lock-ins from the past, you know, may have left a, a bad taste in their mouth. Um, you know, but the thing is, IIT, you know, we have to get married at some point. We have to choose a suitor. So a, a software vendor may come into your environment and say, hardware lock-ins are bad. You should use our, our hyperconverged software-only solution so that you don't get locked into a, a hardware vendor and you have flexibility. But you're still locking into that software solution. So I think what's important is understanding lock-in is going to happen. You're going to get married. And the important part is in choosing the vendor that is going to be a good partner for you to build a platform for your business. So if you have a very good relationship with a vendor who happens to provide a software, uh, software hardware solution all at once, that may be strategically a good venture for you. If you would rather keep the hardware options open and you, you've got a vendor on your uh, Rolodex that you trust can give you a good solution on the software side, that's your best path forward. You just coined a new term for us, by the way, software, hardware, software solution. I'm, I'm owning that, keeping that. Yep. <laughs> so it's that fine line between hardware and firmware. I don't know if we want to create a new word for that one. Uh, moving on, <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about the customers and the, you know, the folks out there that have adopted HCI, the hyperconverged stack. Is there ever a reason you'd want to move to someone else's stack? Is that challenging? 
needling the lock-in question a little bit, but also just the mobility to someone else's platform. Yeah, I mean, move, moving from one stack to another, you're going to create a new pod, a new silo, and, and you've, you've got a, a migration project on your hands. I guess that depends on what's involved in where you're going from it to. If both of these platforms run VMware, it's probably not possible to create a cross-silo cluster and you know vMotion everything across. But standardizing, at least on that software layer, takes a lot of the complexity out of the migration. What I would worry about is that some of these hyperconverged solutions have proprietary ways of deduping and storing data. And you could be looking at a data lock-in, getting that data out and rehydrating another another hyperconverged appliance. You know, could be a pretty large IT project. And once again, just to kind of keep it with the theme of what we're looking at, that is an IT busy work pro- project, and not really one that the business is going to be asking us to do. Yeah, they don't really care. The apps are running. You know, the they don't see the underlay really anyway, so that makes sense. Uh, so it sounds like the answer is you could do it, but it's kind of like why, and it's going to be a lot of headache. And potentially, I guess you have to have made a really horrible choice in the beginning to justify all the operational headache to kind of clean that up. Yeah, you'd have to you'd have to know that sticking with the current solution is not an option at all to undertake the effort that's going to take to get off of that horse. Interesting. Yeah, I can see where potentially there could be some some reasons around that specific use case, but uh, otherwise not a huge driver. What about public cloud integration? You know, the the HCI stack in my mind is all about on-prem resources, you know, pooling and abstracting whatever is necessary to make a node-based, you know, distributed system for running your applications, containers, whatever. How do we start factoring in public cloud resources into that equation? Well, I'm seeing a lot of interesting partnerships between hyperconverged vendors and, and cloud service providers, right? So we we're seeing, uh, you know, obviously uh, like VMware and AWS getting pretty close. We recently heard uh, Nutanix and Google Compute kind of, you know, announcing some kind of partnership. So this gives... This gives IT organizations options when they want to run hybrid clouds. You know, if you choose one hyperconverged vendor, are they aligned with the cloud service provider of your choice? It's almost like they're making the decision for you. So certainly part of the deciding criteria. But at the end of the day, if you're going to be in an environment where you have multiple cloud platforms and... Uh, You've got to find a way to provide a management interface above all of those. A single hyperconverged vendor may not be able to you know, give you everything you need there. You may still be dealing with exception handling. I want to go back to the bare metal issue, Fred, because you, you pointed out that if you have a lot of bare metal workloads, then HCI maybe isn't for you because that's more or less a virtualization play. But do, do you think that if you need to run some bare metal workloads, that, that means you don't go HCI at all? Or do you do HCI for your virtualized workloads and maybe you know, something else for bare metal? Well, this really depends on your appetite for wanting to create a single infrastructure, or or if you want to, if you're okay managing multiple operational silos. If you have a very strong footprint in virtualization already, and uh, and you can mostly standardize on a on a cloud vendor that's well integrated with that hyperconverged solution, then hyperconverged should be a, a strong point of evaluation. I would uh, I would say only look beyond that solution if you find that. Many of your workloads are going to be some mix of physical, virtual, and containers, and you're going to have a foot in two or more cloud service providers. You still want to create a a single infrastructure that can overlay that, ingest all of that. That's where you really need to look beyond what a a hyperconverged solution can do for you. Well, hey! 
are going to get married. I thought that was a really interesting way to put uh, what vendor lock-in is really like. I mean, is it a bad thing to get married? Is it a bad thing to have vendor lock-in? Well, I guess that depends on your point of view. And so when when Fred put it that way, you're going to get married. It's like, oh, that's a really interesting thought. That's a really interesting analogy to make because... Being married has tons of advantages and tons of really good things, you know, about that. And people do those, uh, you know, engage in marriage for very good reasons. And there can be very good reasons that you choose to go down the hyper-converged route where, yeah, maybe you are locked into a vendor. But there's a lot of pros to that. You know, there is a downside of being locked into a vendor, I suppose. But there's so many benefits that come with it. It's not like it's necessarily a bad thing or, you know, a a showstopper because of the vendor lock-in. What's on your mind, Chris? You know, Beyonce did say to put a ring on it. So, I mean, there's there's some good advice there. <laughs> right. um, anyways, I, I just want to comment. I've had experiences where sometimes the purchasing decision isn't coming from the server storage, you know, any of those technology groups. They're not the ones that made the, the decision to pull the trigger on hyperconverged or really any kind of stack. In some cases, it's the executive leadership or even kind of higher up in the application team saying, I want to get IT out of the way. This thing looks very attractive. Maybe there's a trust issue between kind of the upper echelons of the organization and the tech groups from director on down. And, and to me, that that's a really interesting conversation and a huge shift in IT ops when all of a sudden this thing just arrives in the data center dock. And it's like, yeah, you're installing this and you're removing all the old crap out of your data center. So uh, it can come from any direction. Well, Fred, we've talked about traditional Snowflake architectures and converged and hyperconverged, and let's move the conversation ahead now to composable, which I don't know if that's the only term the industry is using, but uh, but certainly it's an interesting one that has come up a lot. Let's start by defining composable infrastructure just to set the stage here and, and make sure we don't confuse it with compostable infrastructure. Yeah, yeah. Compostable infrastructure would be taking that green IT initiative to the nth degree, but composable infrastructure, again, you know, we could talk about other terms, but this is uh, one I've been seeing a, a lot more anyway. It's about creating that platform where all the infrastructure resources are are pooled, uh, like we've mentioned before. So compute, storage, networking, all pooled together. But the administrative operations that would normally have been performed by a human are now all available as code and exposed via an API. So this idea of creating a single infrastructure that could support traditional, you know, line of business type workloads, as well as anything that's that's more business facing, rapid deployment, continuous integration, it you know purports to be able to support all of these without overlaying API. This creates that truly cloud-like experience for that data center. Yeah, Ooh. that's right. Was what I was thinking. It sounds like you've abstracted away all that infrastructure with the API, which which again, right, sounds very cloud-like. You've got to be dealing with some kind of a, like a data center operating system or something that's you know, abstracting away the hardware from you. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah. The core of the solution really is that software layer that's going to overlay. It's not going to replace the hypervisor. It's going to overlay the hypervisor, and it's going to be calling commands to that hypervisor. Or it's going to overlay the physical server, and it will be launching the you know, any sort of you know, operational commands at, uh, at those things. So, so the... The composer, if we can call it that, is the thing that's going to have to speak all of those languages, but provide a single language to the you know the humans who are who are speaking to it. Those being you know could be the the traditional infrastructure admins acting as the the composers, but also ultimately the application developers as well. 
Now, it sounds like composable and hyperconverged are awfully similar. So what – can you draw a line of distinction between composable and hyperconverged? Well, hyperconverged is uh, is building an environment that only supports virtual machines or uh, now containers. But it doesn't cover the physical workload. So really the biggest difference I can see is is just supporting that, that class of uh, systems that still require uh, bare metal systems to run. Interesting. And then we mentioned uh, some of the other terms out there. I mean, do, are there vendors throwing around terms other than composable, but pretty much they mean the same thing? Well, I've heard... Program. I can't line these up to uh, to vendors, but I've heard programmable infrastructure. I've heard intelligent infrastructure. I've heard disaggregated infrastructure, which kind of sounds like uh, disaggregated switching. Composable is. Uh, I don't know if that's the term that will stick, but it is one that I've heard from two vendors, both of whom are offering very different solutions. You know, we have uh, HPE, who's got Synergy with you know, so they're 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 putting the word composable infrastructure forward to describe. Their product, it's a hardware software play all in one. We have another company up here in uh, in Canada, HT Base, who's using composable infrastructure to describe their product. It's a software only solution that can overlay your your on premises gear as well as you know all your public cloud environments and provide that single API to all of those underlying infrastructures. So they're doing the same thing. They're providing those those very similar uh, promises, but you can see that at the end of the day, the solutions themselves are very different. On one hand, you've got servers and 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 looks like a, a big blade chassis in there, and on the other hand, it's a it's a pure software play. So the that's why it's been hard to kind of pin down exactly what uh, what composable infrastructure is. I have this mental picture of a Venn diagram and each marketing term overlays in the center where it's just the picture of the turtles all the way down. (laughs) As long as there's turtles going all the way down, you're composable. Maybe a little Inception reference there. Um, Okay, getting back on on point here. You actually dug up this chart that shows the complexity of composable infrastructure being low, converged and HCI are rated at moderate, and traditional is high. But... (laughs) Pardon my ignorance here, but composable sounds pretty darn complex. Sounds pretty challenging. Maybe it's because this is kind of new-ish. What are your thoughts on that chart and its complexity ratings versus the reality of things? Well, I think you're absolutely right. It's new-ish. There are there are no standards. Uh, we don't even know the words to use yet. So so that but that's all a different kind of complexity. There is also the complexity in the fact that you have to build this environment that can do all of these things, right? They can provide that API and they can automatically go and, and spin up those things that you're bringing together. So there's a lot of upfront complexity. And I think that's what that chart was referring to was more the complexity in, uh, in dealing with and kind of managing the infrastructure. Operationally, until it's you know, a little more mature, it's, uh, it's still going to be complex. But, uh, but operationally, it promises to be a lot easier than going back to what we've been talking about, the challenges with traditional infrastructure and the challenges with converged and so on. You know, Composable aims to solve many of those challenges, but at the, at the cost of upfront complexity and market maturity right now. Yeah. So it's not necessarily the complexity of like you and me off the street putting it together, but it feels like maybe the theoretical complexity in order to take advantage of this moving forward, like instantiation. Yeah, that's, that's heavy lifting. This is kind of new. There's a lot of, I guess, learnings that must be absorbed, but once that's you're right. get going, maybe it's not so bad. That's right. Like I need, I need a, a, an environment with which to run this business process, go and make it happen. Well, in the traditional world, we've discussed the complexity that it takes to do that. I got to order gear. I got to rack, you know, up, you know, I got to stitch it together, et cetera. That's complexity. 
in a composable environment, all of that, that pre-work has already done, that workflow is developed, and that thing that I need is instantiated. So that's the complexity that we're taking away. But in order to create the environment with which that magic happens, that's complexity. That's still the job I want to be doing. If anybody's afraid of their job going away because they're not the one who's managing the requests of the configuration of the VLAN or the zoning of the SAN or anything like that, that's fine. We're out of that service chain. You know, getting into the world of building this infrastructure where all of these things can take place in in supposedly these minutes and seconds that are promised, that's where that's where I want to spend my time. All right. Minutes and seconds. So composable, that seems to be one of the promises that once you get this whole system up and running, you can provision new workloads in, in, in minutes or even seconds. But do most businesses actually need that? I always use the, the term when I, when I would hear performance uh, metrics like that, you know, I would always use the term, well, look, I'm, I'm not building rocket ships here. And most businesses aren't. Um, obviously, some are. And, uh, and we, we love to we love to listen to those use cases, you know, the <laughs> Facebook, uh, you know, Amazon, Netflix, Google. Most businesses in the enterprise don't need sub-second provisioning time for their workloads. That's only one of the value propositions of this composable architecture. The other value proposition comes with you know, just bringing together a single environment that I can use to create physical uh, bare metal workloads, uh, virtual machines, containers. You know, and I can do that all with a single API or, or management interface. If you're working in an environment where you don't deal with application developers coding your infrastructure, that's fine. You're still getting a single place that you can use to, to, to manage your infrastructure and eventually code it yourself. So I still think that there's a, a use case for infrastructure folks to be able to interface with this API, if not the, you know, handing it right over to the developers or you know, obviously some shared usage of, uh, of something like that. So you've hinted to it a little bit earlier, you know, that the fact that I guess just being scared of this stuff, which I think is fine. I think it's fine to be to be a little intimidated by it and, and have a little fear because that tends to motivate someone. You know, it motivates me when I'm like, oh, man, I don't know what this is. I don't know how to operate it. That gets my juices flowing. I want to, like, figure it out and put my hands on it and tinker. Uh, mm-hmm. So hopefully mm-hmm. this is the kick in the butt that makes you go, OK, I need to make some changes. But change is hard. You don't necessarily know where to start. So with all this infrastructure provisioning and automation around it, you know, how does it impact the infrastructure, you know, you and me, the infrastructure engineer? Well, let's talk about new skills that are coming in the door and, and what, what skills can we kind of purge, you know, like send to dev null in our brain? Yeah, yeah. I mean, raise your hand if you got into IT because you don't want to learn new things, right? <laughs> right. When did that That's stop? a good way to do it. Yeah. <laughs> So, so yeah, learn, learning new things. So how about uh, as an infrastructure person, you know, never being a, a programmer? I mean, here's another one. Raise your hand if you got into infrastructure because you didn't want to program. Whoops. Understanding APIs, I think, is, is one thing I'd want to start getting uh, familiar with. So, so you know, like wh- what is an API? What is, it, what is it exposed to me? What does it allow me to do? And is that something that I'd want to be able to do with my infrastructure? That kind of a skill. In, in being able to to both understand an API guide and then interact with it in some way, that is a skill that's coming in. That's a technical skill. There are other type of skills that are becoming more important. There are there are people skills, like for example, uh, vendor management. Vendor management is getting a lot more focus in the infrastructure world as we move to a world where we're not buried in the data center. You know, are building stuff from the ground up. We are buying mostly complete solutions and plugging them in together that requires a lot more interfacing with our with our vendors and understanding them keeping them honest 
the other people that you're going to be working more closely with are your your business folks and your application folks. So, you know, if you're operating a, an infrastructure environment where you've got application developers and you're providing them the way to get more direct access to compose the infrastructure, so to speak, you're going to be working a lot more with them on uh, on what they want and uh, and providing their needs directly to them. So so those walls start to come down as well. All right. Well, Fred, thank you for being on the show with us today. We got through a lot of different ways to think about different infrastructure choices. You know, it's time to buy new stuff. Well, what do we buy? Let's buy the same thing we always bought. Maybe we shouldn't buy the same thing we always bought. That's and that, I love shows like this that uh, you know challenge the thinking and shake things up to maybe think about what else you should be doing that uh, that makes sense and then the impact that's going to have on you. So, Fred, do you blog? Are you social? How can people follow you? I don't blog enough, but when I do. It's at the Packet Pushers. Um, <laughs> Community blogger at PacketPushers.net. Hooray! I am also available on Twitter, mostly active during conferences, but uh, but I do try to you know shed a nugget or two of uh, of insight. I'm at, at Fred Chagno on Twitter, so that's F R E D C H A G N O N. Awesome. Thanks again, Fred, and thank you for listening today. That is it for today's edition of the Data Knots podcast. You can reach Ethan. That would be me at EC Banks on Twitter. My blog is ethancbanks.com, and you can also find me at packetpushers.net. You can probe Chris at Chris Wall on Twitter, and his blog is wallnetwork.com. And for more of our Data Knot shows about infrastructure engineering, nosedive down the rabbit hole that is packetpushers.net. You will find the Data Knots talking about containers and conferences, certifications, PowerShell, moving to cloud, full stack engineering, storage architecture and so much more. Until then, may your server lights blink, your storage spindles spin, and your cables be cleanly managed. I want to make sure that you're okay. I... If I am profusely bleeding from a bullet hole, you will know. <laughs> okay, it stopped. <laughs>